Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. One day, as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples gathered around him, and he began to teach them. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad, for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Now please join me in welcoming Nate. Thanks so much, Harbor, for having me here. Uh, it's great to be back, uh, and it's, it's great to uh, preach on this because I do believe this is really important. I, uh, uh, I love this verse, and the last time I preached here, it was on this, and that was only a few months ago. So <laughs> They brought in the same person because, gosh, I've been digging into this a lot. So I was, uh, I was talking to someone recently about travel, uh, and if you know me, you know I'm kind of a, like, a curmudgeon about this kind of thing, and it's, it's not because I'm anti-travel. I just think that most places are the same. Uh, we were hanging out in a, in a brewery in Somerville, and I did this like enigmatic thing. I was like, all right, Andrew, look around. Look around at this room. Look at all the people, the way it's laid out, how it's decorated. You could teleport yourself to like 10 other cities in the world, and it would be exactly the same. You wouldn't know where you were. And the reason for that is I really do think that uh, most places are the same, especially from like a touristy perspective. Um, I uh, read this book in high school when I was trying to be smart uh, called The World is Flat, and the argument that it makes is, is essentially that because of global industry, because of commerce, uh, because people moving around, that folks in major cities have a lot more in common in terms of their daily lives than folks uh, in major cities versus like rural areas. Uh, and travel's cool. I mean, I like to travel. Uh, my family, we're planning to do some, do some travel, so I'm not, I'm not anti-travel, but I really do think that uh, a lot of places are the same, and I come to that conclusion because I've lived in four places in my life, and three of those are, are major cities. I grew up in Pittsburgh, uh, I went to school in Atlanta, uh, and then I've lived here in Boston for, for almost eight years. And really, I mean, though there's some differences in those cities, uh, they're really, I love them a lot because of the things that are similar, the people and, and kind of the, the balance of life. But I've lived one place that was completely different. Completely, completely different. Has anyone here ever heard of or been to Corpus Christi, Texas? And yeah, zero people and a laugh. All right. So, <laughs> Corpus Christi, if you don't know, is uh, in South Texas. It's, it's two hours north of the Mexican border. Uh, it's, it's way down there. And it's a place I lived right after graduating from college. I was working as an engineer. Um, and it's a place unlike anywhere that I've ever lived. The people, how they thought about life, um, sort of the, the flow, uh, just the schedule, the zoning, all of that stuff completely different than anything I had ever experienced. And I'll show you a picture of Nate living in Corpus Christi. Uh, this is a, um, a picture uh, of myself there. And, and what you'll notice about this picture is um, essentially, uh, number one, I'm playing golf. I, I never play golf. I don't like to play golf. Uh, <laughs> 
This is a friend of mine invited me uh, out after work to just hit golf balls into the distance. Okay, so Corpus is extremely spread out. There's uh, three major industries. There's farms that are just kind of surrounding everywhere uh, all around the city. There's a naval base there, and then there's chemical plants. So you see in the background that chemical plant. That was the chemical plant I worked at. Uh, basically everywhere you look in Corpus, there's a chemical plant just off into the distance. Rush hour is at 6 a.m. and 6 p.m. because that's when shift changes. It's not tied necessarily to what you would call traditional work schedules. You can also see in that picture it's overcast. It's overcast there a lot, but it's also in the triple digits almost constantly. So it's overcast. It's humid. You can see my hair is a little messed up. That's because it's windy. It's the windiest city in the country and one of the windiest cities in the world. It's crazy. It's, it really is this kind of like bizarro place. And I loved it there, and I love people there. I'm still connected to, to many people there. Um, but it really was truly different than anything I had ever experienced. And the reason I, I, I kind of bring this up and, and the reason this, this comes to mind is really today in, in talking about the kingdom of God, talking about the Sermon on the Mount, which is uh, what our verse is this morning, it's going to be about differences. It's going to be about spotting differences and really saying, like, all right, what about this Christian life? What about what we say about the kingdom of God is, is truly different? And what we're going to talk about here is I'm hoping that we leave into uncharted territory. This is the beginning of a series. I'm going to try to open this up. But this is going to be, especially if you've come to church, if you've talked about this kind of stuff before, this is going to be a little bit different than maybe what you're know, used to. As opposed to kind of a parable where you talk about morality. This is more, this Bible verse today is more of a philosophy. And so before we venture into the unknown, let's talk about that word philosophy. So philosophy gets a bad rap because any philosophers that you might know are like real bummers. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been around a philosopher. They're a tough hang. Uh, every time you read about like the biographies, it's like they lived alone. They thought about stuff a lot. <laughs> and the reason for that is philosophy, the word is, I mean, you kind of encounter it sometimes in academic settings, but the word is a really simple word. Philo just means love in like a familial brotherly way. And then Sophia, which means wisdom in Greek. It's also the most common name uh, in Eastern Europe, and it has been for like the last two millennia. So if you ever meet Sophia's, uh, that, that name means wisdom. And so philo, Sophia, philosophy means the love of wisdom. And it really is, it's the study, it's this extremely broad field of the study of what is true, what is real, how do you know what is real. And it's a really, uh, it's, it's important because how we go about life, how we think about things is philosophy. We all have personal philosophies that influence the way we think about things. But uh, when you encounter sort of serious philosophy, it's like, ugh, it's, it, you, can't, you can't penetrate it. It is something where uh, as soon as somebody starts talking about like the theory of knowledge zone out, I start thinking about football or something else because <laughs> that's why philosophers are tough hangs is because the minute that I am like done and wanting to think about who the Pats are going to replace Mac with at quarterback, they are like, no, let's keep going into deeper, like why we could possibly know or not know something. And so I think that's why it doesn't necessarily get talked about, uh, you know, in an interpersonal way in the ways that other things get talked about. So let's talk about philosophy. Let's talk about where we're at as sort of Western understanders of philosophy, Western thought. I know when you were coming to church today, you were like, hey, maybe... I should go to church because the speaker is going to go through the history of Western philosophy in a crash course style, and you're lucky because I'm going to do that. So <laughs> where did philosophy begin? This is, and I'm doing this because I, I want to just really establish like where we're at and, and where, how we think of things 
as just people in the modern world. Uh, philosophy started out with guessing. People guessed about what was right or what was wrong. Uh, pretty soon mythology came, came into the, the focus. You think about like Greek myths, Roman myths, that kind of thing. The weather is caused by some sort of battle going on in heaven. There was also some empiricism there. I don't know if you, were in, you encounter some of the works like uh, specifically, I think Aristotle talked about how you know, there's four elements that might constitute everything in the world, wind, water, fire, and heart. No, it's uh, wind, water, fire, earth. It's earth. Heart is Captain Planet. Uh, it's, it's, this empiricism kind of came with the idea that maybe there are like fundamental building blocks to life and we can explain life through you know, building up from there. So from that kind of standpoint of mythology, guessing, that kind of stuff, then you get cosmology from religion. Uh, cosmology is a fancy name for just like what we think the word, how, how we think the world sort of was formed, that kind of stuff. Christian cosmology is what we understand about Adam and Eve and the Old Testament and God, that kind of stuff. And that's pretty much the way it was for, I don't know, a couple of millennia. Uh, throughout the Middle Ages, you had the philosophy of basically some combination of, well, there's something greater than us, maybe God, gods, that kind of thing, dictating stuff. And then we're also going to guess as to how, you know, plants grow and, and the earth uh, rotates, that kind of stuff. And then you've got two major uh, things that happened. I'm almost done. Don't worry if your eyes are glossing over. You have uh, the first thing is the Renaissance, which is uh, people kind of deriving truth from beauty. Uh, that's when, if you've ever been to Europe or any sort of old museum, you get all those paintings of people looking serious, you know, maybe lounging next to fruit, something like that. That's like the Renaissance. That's basically people saying, all right, there's these forms that are beautiful, and truth comes from what we recognize as humans to be beautiful. That's also a bunch of architecture. That kind of stuff happened uh, during that time period. And then you have the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment is uh, essentially the rise of empiricism. If you've ever had to do the scientific method in school where you like start out with a hypothesis and work from there that is the enlightenment so that's uh, a bunch of folks saying anything that can be known can be sort of gone back to first principles and can build those principles up to uh, just these higher concepts that began that began uh, that propelled the industrial revolution and that came basically all the way up into the 20th century until the period that we're in now, which I will call sort of like modern psychology or like humans are unreliable. I think that's like the, basically the gist of uh, current philosophy is, you know, humans are really bad at understanding things because we've got bias and prejudices. Even from the places that we're really genuinely trying to understand things, it's hard to know stuff because we bring a lot to the table ourselves. Um, so the idea that there can be this neutral observer, that's sort of been put to the side, and it's more about saying, all right, how do we manage these biases instead of just denying that they're there in the first place? So that's the history of uh, philosophical thought, and that's where we're at right now. We're kind of a combination of all those things. When I think about myself, I'd like to think that I'm this empirical, you know, straight shooter, that kind of stuff, but I guess a lot as to how I think the world works. I um, have, you know, some scientific method. If I'm maybe like trying to fix my car, I'll like talk to a mechanic and try to like work through what's actually going to happen. Uh, I've got some, obviously I'm a Christian, so like Christian cosmology and what I understand about morality, I'll go to the Bible and think about, all right, how do I treat my neighbor? How do I get some wisdom there? Uh, I've, I've got a lot of influences in that area, but then also, yeah, I, I understand that the way I operate in the world is, you know, biased and is uh, not always correct. So I do have some of that self-doubt and re reevaluation of myself. And I think, you know, it's pretty safe to say most of us are there. Most of us kind of carry these philosophies with a some version form of, of all this stuff. Maybe we lean more heavily in, in one, one area.
But that philosophical history is, is what Jesus is talking into. And the reason I'm, I'm really belaboring this philosophical point is because the Sermon on the Mount is not a recommendation about how things should be. It's not this uh, Jesus kind of playing out like, eh, it would be great if it was like this. Jesus says these words as a statement of fact. So let's dive into them right now. And I'll have a, I've got a little bit of a different version than was read before, and uh, we'll put them on the screen here. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him and began to speak. And he taught them, saying, and this is, if you can imagine Jesus up on a mountain, he's got his disciples right here in the front row, and he's got all these crowds with him. He goes, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. I like that one. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And finally, and a lot of people believe Jesus kind of said this directly to his disciples based on the writing. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Okay, so Jesus says this to all of those people, and what do they think? Well, they think the same thing that I think. From my philosophical vantage point, Jesus That is not true. You are describing a world that does not exist. This isn't the world that I live in, right? Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. That's not, that doesn't doesn't coincide with my experience. That's just plain not how it works. And I think uh, a big piece to this is that word blessed. And I want to demystify that that word right there. Blessed comes from the, it's a Greek word, makaroi. It actually predates the Bible. It's Christianese now that they sort of say, blessed, blessed, bless you, that kind of thing. But Plato uses the word blessed long before the Old Testament was written down. See, that word comes from basically just statement of, of fact more than it comes from a statement of some future guarantee of uh, good fortune. It's not luck. It's, it's essentially saying th- good things are going to happen to you because that's the way the world works. That's really the way to think about the word Blessed. It's not, hey, in the future or in heaven or something like that, things are going to work out. It's a statement of fact about right now. If you plant crops and you water them, they will grow. They will be blessed. Not necessarily because you've got no actions here yourself, but, but that's, that's the way the world works. It's a statement of philosophy. It's not a statement of morality. And I say that because I use the word bless all the time in, well, it's going to be hard now, but I will be blessed and that will sort of come to be at some future place. And as Christians, we understand that, understand you know, what, what's going to happen in heaven, that kind of stuff. But Jesus isn't really there. He's, he's very much in the moment now. He's saying, blessed are the meek now. And that's hard because, again, from a philosophical standpoint, those eight blessings, and I say eight, even though there's nine, I think that last one is, is kind of set directly to the, to the disciples. Those eight blessings that he refers to to everybody, he shouts out. We call them the Beatitudes. He's saying that's the way the world works now. So let's go through them real quick. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I don't think that that's true. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. 
Blessed are the meek, for they, for they will inherit the earth. I don't know any meek people who have inherited any earths. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive merciful, mercy. I do not think that that's true. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. I've got a lot of people trying to pursue peace in my life, and it is very difficult to understand where they are being blessed. And then finally, blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those are absurd statements. Those are absurd statements. The title of this sermon series is The World Upside Down. Because the Sermon on the Mount is describing a world that is so different, so philosophically different from the one that we know, the one we experience, especially the one as we go about our days, as we work, as we pay our bills, as we manage our lives. It's so different. But Jesus is saying, this is the way that the world is. So how do we reconcile that stuff? How do we reconcile the fact that this might be the one of the most difficult parts of the Bible to parse through? talk about the death and the resurrection. It's an understanding of cosmology. But I can tell you this. I do a lot of work with people who are not Christians, a lot of friends that are not Christians. When they talk to me about what I think about Christianity, we rarely bring up the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Oh, I can't believe you believe that as a historical fact. That doesn't come up. What does come up, and I'm guessing it comes up for you too, is why isn't the world the way Jesus describes it in the Sermon on the Mount? Why is there so much hypocrisy, not only in the world, but also in the church? Why is this such a difficult thing to do? We talk about morality. We talk about the way the world should work. And if there's anything that, you know, gets leveled against me very accurately, by the way, is why is your Christian philosophy the same as the philosophy in the world? Why is... Why is there's this weird disconnect between what I see Jesus saying and what I see you guys doing. And that's fair. And I think this is the heart of what it means to be a Christian. When we get baptized, uh, we say the, 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 the sinner's prayer, the confession of faith. I think it's apt to include the Sermon on the Mount in there to say philosophically being a Christian is a lot more about believing blessed are the meek Blessed are the righteous. Those people who are struggling, they're the ones who get it. I think it's a lot more accurate to say that is the life of the Christian. Because when I think about my life of the places where I think, all right, hey, uh, you know, where, where am I not honoring people who are righteous? The answer is subjective, and I think it's subjective for all of you. The places where I am not conducting myself in a fair way, the places where I'm angry at the people who love me the most, the places where I'm not generous, the reasons for that are all subjective. That's because I'm afraid. It's because I believe that if I am honest about the places that I struggle, I will be separated from the rest of the world. If I come to a group of people and say, hey, here's this thing that's really affecting me, that they'll actually just turn their backs on you. And we know that happens in, in the world. We know that, you know, only the strong survive and then you've got to put on a brave face. And we do celebrate the underdog every once in a while, but for the most part, that's not how things work. And it's sad to say, too, that in a lot of cases, and I'm sure in some people's experience here, in my own experience, too, you get let down by the church, too. You come to a place like Harbor thinking it is going to be different. 
And you lament the fact that it's the same fallible people here as well. And so when I start answering that question of why can't my world be like the Sermon on the Mount? Why can't I conduct myself that way all the time? That's where the real feelings come. I think that's where pay dirt comes in terms of understanding who we are as Christians, understanding our philosophy. Because if our philosophy is, hey, the world is a tough place, we should be better, and let's uh, try to encourage each other and move on, that's not Christianity. That's just, uh, I don't know, that's trying to be relatively moral, I guess. Christianity is believing that the way the world is actually supposed to work is a place where blessed are the meek, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the people who are trying to make peace, blessed are those who are mourning, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. That's the real world. And that the distorted world, the disjointed world, the world that we're sad, that we lament about is everything else. Christianity is not something that we come back to, is this mark to aim at, is ideally that would be the case. No, it's the place where that's real and everything else is, 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 is clouded by the fall. This goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. And so to start out this, this sermon series, I just want to basically talk about how this perspective shift changes what we understand about ourselves, what we understand about what we're trying to do at church. See, as Christians, I believe the most revolutionary thing you can do when you accept Jesus is accepting this philosophy of blessed are the meek. Accepting the philosophy of the Sermon on the Mount. And you can't change the world. I mean, one person, it's very difficult to change the world. But the reason that we come together in church, the reason why Christianity isn't just a cosmology, we don't just come here and shake hands and say, hey, do you believe that Jesus existed? Yes. Okay, great. See you outside. The reason we do this is because we want to share in a philosophy. We want to create essentially the world the way it should be here at church. We want to create a world where those who are mourning, those who are poor in spirit can be comforted, where it's those people that are focused on, those people who are understood and loved. And when those people come to us, they are accepted into the community because we share the mutual struggle of looking outside at the world and saying, that's not the way it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be the way that Jesus describes it in the Sermon on the Mount. Philosophically, we should be acting in that way, in the Beatitudes. And so I encourage folks, as we go throughout this series, to ask not, hey, that's a good idea about what blessing is, or that might be a more moral way to live my life, but really to start looking at the ways why for my own reasons, why is my fear, my, my anger, my mistrust, why is that preventing me from believing the things that Jesus is saying, believing in that philosophy that Jesus lays out in the Sermon on the Mount? And at church, collectively, understanding that the only way to understand the kingdom of God is with each other. Because this philosophy is communal. I can go off and I can read the Bible by myself and be like, all right, okay, I believe this stuff is true, but that's not Again, what Christianity is. Christianity is coming and trying to come together and make this place that is the kingdom of God. 
the heart of Christian belief is, is the resurrection of Jesus. It's the death and the resurrection of Jesus. But the heart of Christian experience is the Sermon on the Mount. The heart of what we understand about the world and the struggle to make it happen is the Christian experience. And it's a battle that gets played out in our hearts, in our minds, every single week. And what is church but a place to come back and to say, this is true. Even if we can't make it happen, even if we can't get it right every single time, this is still true for us. And when we think about bringing people to church, we think about you know, asking our friends about what they believe. It's that stuff. And I thought for a long time that the heart of ministry was this, you know, hey, get people to believe in the resurrection, that kind of thing. But ministry is, at its core, understanding that the Christian philosophy is so revolutionary and so different that talking about it, really, you're talking about us. We're talking about the ways that we interact. We're talking about the deep, dark places within us that I know for me, particularly, fear is a huge one. Most of the things that I do that don't coincide with the philosophy of Jesus are predicated on fear. And so that's where I want to leave us today. So for the future of this series, I want you to ask, what is real to me? At the end of the day, what is real? What is my philosophy and what is a change to that philosophy? And let's work as a church, as Harbor, to make the Sermon on the Mount a reality here, within us, within this church community. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for the ways that you have blessed this community, the ways that you have grown this church, the ways that you've raised up leaders, the blessings that you've put on Katie. And I thank you for these words here, and I pray that we don't shy away from understanding the revolutionary attitude that Jesus has. He's saying something that is so different than what really any of us have not only heard but experienced in this world. We lament the ways that the world is not like the Sermon on the Mount. We lament the ways that people who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness are not filled We lament the ways that we as Christians and as a church can't seem to get it right sometimes. And God, please do not prevent us from trying, from continuing to try to make it that way. Amen.